Okay, Bob, sounds good. Okay, good morning, everybody. Let's gather. We got Eric uh, up on the screen here. We're going to be talking about Joel. Okay, let's get going. Okay, I'll open with prayer and then turn it over to Eric. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together to study your word. And Lord, we ask you to give wisdom and understanding to Eric as he teaches us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, Bob. Well, it's great to be back in the book of Joel with everyone here. Now, I want to um, remind everybody thus far in the book of Joel, we've been looking at warnings that Joel has given to the people of Judah because of their idolatry. He warned them about impending judgment from this northern enemy. Prior to that, remember, Joel had talked about the locust judgment was because of their idolatry. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is when we get to Joel 2.18, which is where we are today, all the way through the rest of the book, it's all good news. It's all about the restoration of Israel because God is going to be faithful to his promises. In fact, this is a very important section because the next time we're in Joel, after this section, we're going to come to the great promise of sending the Spirit that we see fulfilled at Pentecost. That's Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. Well, then after that, you get into Joel chapter 3, which is a, the great promise where God is going to bring all of the enemies to surround Jerusalem, but he's going to decimate them and set up his kingdom. So th all the news now from Joel 2, 18 forward is good news about God restoring the people of Israel. So I want to begin by reading here Joel 2, 18 through 19. Notice what he says. He says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make a reproach among the nations. But dear ones, I want to talk a little bit about the grammar of this passage. I want you to see that the New American Standard Bible renders these verbs as being future tense. The Lord will be jealous. The one thing I want you to realize is that in the Hebrew, it's what's called a yiktol verb. And normally that's referring to something that's happened in the past. So one of the things that we have to wrestle with, is this something that's going to happen in the future or is it something that already happened? Well, I think clearly Joel is talking about a future restoration. And so this may be a case or an example in the Old Testament of what we call prolepsis. Bob and I did a lot of talking during the, the teaching on the book of Revelation about the concept of prolepsis. A proleptic statement is a statement that's made about something in the future, but it speaks as if it's already occurred. Now, the New American Standard Bible doesn't do that. It just simply renders it with future-oriented verbs. Okay, but I wanted you to be aware that that's probably what's going on. The New American Standard Bible simply cuts the Gordian knot and just wants you to know this is something that's going to happen in the future, but the verbs are really past tense, more than likely. Now, that's very significant. Now, I want to talk about the idea here of God being zealous. Notice in red, he's zealous for his land, and he's going to have pity on his people. The, the term in Hebrew for zealous can also be rendered jealous. In fact, it comes from the Hebrew term kanah. 
And what's interesting about this adjective is it's used when God reveals himself at Sinai to the people of Israel in the second commandment. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 5. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5. And I want you to see God reveals himself as being a zealous or jealous God. Now, notice here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 5. I hope you've turned there. Notice what he says. This is the second commandment. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below in the water under the earth. Then in verse 5, he says, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. There's the term kanah, same term that you see here in Joel. He's a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, what I want you to see is God reveals himself then as being a jealous God. And we can think of that as in human terms, it seems capricious, but we have to know God's zeal and his jealousness isn't some capricious fly off the handle and get angry type of attitude, but rather it's an attitude that's designed to glorify himself. That's what he's zealous for. God is rightly zealous and jealous to make his name great among his creation. That's what he's zealous for. And it's never an unrighteous thing to want to have God's name glorified. Now, the way we glorify God is something that he has ordained through the scriptures, but to be zealous or jealous for the sake of the Lord is our, always considered a righteous deed in the scriptures. Now, what I want you to see is why is God zealous, not only for his people, he's going to have pity on them, but also the land. Notice it says that he's zealous for his land. Now, that in some sense is synonymous with the people who inhabit the land, but it's also for the land itself. Let me explain to you why. He's a promise-keeping God. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 15, verse 18. Genesis 15, verse 18. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, remember, as we turn to Genesis 15, this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And in this covenant, God made unconditional promises. He alone was the one who walked the blood path. Remember, Abraham was asleep, and God alone walks the blood path and indicating that he alone is going to validate and verify that this covenant is maintained. So ultimately, when we see the covenant being cut in Genesis 15, God's name is at stake. And so if these promises don't come about, it's his name and his glory that is going to be attacked. So notice what he promised Abraham, Genesis 15, 18. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, let's just stop there. Notice the extent of the borders of Israel is from the river of the Euphrates all the way to the Nile. So that's bigger than it has ever been. That's what's going to be established in the future millennial kingdom. But here's the issue. When we look through history, and many of you have seen this longer than I have, that for years and years, the world has attacked the nation of Israel. That's satanic. Satan wants to keep God from fulfilling his promises so that he'll be a liar, so that his name will be defamed. 
And so one of the issues in the book of Joel is their idolatry. Yes, it brings calamity upon them, but ultimately it brings disrepute upon God's name. And that's what he's zealous for. That's why, as we see in the New Testament, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We're going to come to that in 2 Timothy. And so God cannot deny his promises. His name is in fact at stake. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles again to Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And I want you to see the promise that he made to Abraham and by extension, all the descendants of Israel. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And again, what we're looking at is why is God so zealous to restore the people and their land and all of their promises? Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. Now, remember Genesis 15, God cuts the covenant with Abraham. It's unilateral. Genesis 22, Abraham had faith in Genesis 15. Now Abraham acts on it in Genesis 22. He's willing to sacrifice his own son knowing that God will even raise him from the dead, as the writer of Hebrews points out in Hebrews 11. Now, notice in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, the Lord responds to this great act of faith by Abraham. It says, then the angel of the Lord, now I think that's, by the way, stop there. That's the beginning of verse 15. That's the pre-incarnate form of Christ. Okay, this is a theophany. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seeds as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now stop there. Let's just stop there for just a moment. If the locust plague continued and the famine continued in Joel's day, the people of Judah and Israel would have been wiped out. Okay, then God's promise would be null and void. They wouldn't be a mighty people that number more than the sands of the sea, as the Lord promised in Genesis 22:17. If the northern armies come and absolutely wipe out all of Israel, then God's promise is also null and void. But let's continue into the rest of verse 17. Notice he says, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Notice in verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So notice there's another promise that one day the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to possess their enemies. Okay, so if the northern enemies, Assyrian Babylon, win, God's a liar. Notice if, in fact, verse 18 doesn't come about, God's a liar. In verse 18, he says, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's about the Messiah. Genesis 22, 18 is about the Messiah. The very first promise in the Bible is Genesis 3:15. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. So we find out in Genesis 15, the seed is going to come from Abraham. We actually see that earlier in Genesis 12. So we see it's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. But again, if the Israelites are wiped out by the northern enemy, then God's promises are null and void. So that's what God is zealous for. He is zealous and jealous for his own namesake, for his own glory, and rightly so. 
So as we read Joel 2, if we don't understand the backdrop of Genesis and all the promises that God makes, his jealousness and zeal can seem misplaced. But if we understand what's at stake, then we understand that God is concerned with his glory. Let's talk about this northern enemy then. We're going to continue on here into verse 20, where we see that God removes the northern threat. He says, but I will remove the northern army far from you. And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. Now, it's very important that we note here that in the Joel 2.20, we have the northern army is actually in the emphatic position grammatically. So it's in the first place of the sentence. And the reason that's significant is this northern army is what is the greatest threat facing Israel after the locust plague. Now, this also proves, being that he refers to it as the northern army, that this has to be human beings and not the locusts. Now, listen to me carefully. Dear ones, if you read a lot of commentaries, a lot of commentaries today believe that this northern army is still merely the locust plague. What I'm claiming is, no, it's not. It's an allusion to the future that is the coming invasion by Assyria and Babylon. Now, many of the commentaries that claim, no, this is just a reference to the locust plague, the reason they hold to that is because they're theological liberals. They don't believe in predictive prophecy. They can't believe that Joel, inspired by the Spirit of God, can speak about events that are still in the future. But here's a devastating fact. The locust plagues that infected Israel didn't come from the north. They came from the south and the southeast. So whatever army that Joel is referring to with the northern army, he must be referring to what? Human beings. In fact, if we look at history, the reason the Assyrians came down in the 8th century upon the Israelites from the north is because they didn't dare try to penetrate the Arabian desert. The same thing applies to the Babylonians a century later. So it would be very formidable to try to drive your army from Mesopotamia all the way through the Arabian desert and to try to wipe out the people of Israel. It's impossible. So they had to follow the fertile ground where they had water, which would bring them up to the north of Israel and then come down. So certainly this northern army is a human army it cannot be a reference to the locust. That is absolutely essential to our interpretation of the book of Joel. If we don't get that right, we're going to be off in left field thinking, well, he's still talking about the locust plague. No, he's talking about a future army. And yes, God's prophets do speak of future events. Now, let's uh, remember that when he says, I will remove the northern army from you, God did that. In 612 BC, he removed Assyria by the hands of the Babylonians. And then later in 539 BC, the other major northern threat, which were the Babylonians, they were sacked by the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus. Okay, so God was faithful to this hundreds of years after Joel gave this prophecy. Dear brothers and sisters, over and over in the scriptures, we see prophecies made that are fulfilled hundreds of years later. That's one of the reasons when I was a young man, I came to faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ because I knew the Bible because of predictive prophecy had to be God's word. Dear ones, that's what you and I should be using with our unbelieving neighbor. We are never as Christians asking people to believe in myths or fairy tales. What we're asking them to do is not to take a blind leap into the dark with no evidence. What we're asking unbelievers to do is believe because of the evidence. That's what we're asking them to do. Now, what I want you to see here is in this promise where God is going to remove the northern army, notice how he describes it. He says, I'm going to drive it into a parched and desolate land. And it's vanguard. Notice the term vanguard, literally the panet, the face. That is the front edge of it. He's going to what? He's going to drive it into the eastern sea. That's the dead sea. Okay, well, then what is he going to do with the rear guard? He's going to drive that into the Mediterranean. And the image here is it's going to be a complete destruction. Complete destruction. God is absolutely going to decimate the northern army that threatens the people of God. Whether it's the Assyrians or whether it's the Babylonians, he did this. Now, I want you to see a preliminary fulfillment of this, which happens before the ultimate fulfillment. Do you remember when Sennacherib, and the Assyrian forces surrounded Jerusalem? Well, when they did that, remember, Hezekiah was king, and he cried out to the Lord in prayer. You can read about this in Isaiah 37. In fact, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 37, verses 36 through 38. Please turn your Bibles there, if you will. Because I want you to see that there was a preliminary fulfillment of judging the northern army when the prophet Isaiah was prophesying. And it's one of the most shocking miracles in all of the Bible. Again, you have the greatest army at that time in the world, the world superpower, the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. The messengers of Assyria tell Hezekiah the king that the people are going to have to drink their own urine because they're going to be cut off from any water. And so they threaten them and threaten them. And Hezekiah gulps. He brings the, his prayer and the words of the Assyrian leaders into the temple of God. And God responds. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 37, 36 or 38. Listen to what God did to the northern army that was run by Sennacherib. It says, then the angel of Yahweh. Stop there. Again, who is that? I believe it's Christ. It's a Christophany. So who was it that defeated the Assyrian army? It was the pre-incarnate Christ. This is what the second person of the Trinity was doing prior to his incarnation, listen to what he what it says. The angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Let's just stop there in verse 37. Can you imagine the greatest army of the world is surrounding Jerusalem, Hezekiah brings this prayer into the temple, and Isaiah promises that God is going to deliver them. When they wake up in the morning, 185,000 enemy soldiers are all dead. Now, a very interesting note, I hope, by the way, Dana Birkinshaw is there. He might actually know the reference that I'm referring to, but there was an Egyptian uh, archaeological find in fact, it's with us to this day, in which the Egyptians in this artifact note that 
that this occurred, that the Assyrians were wiped out surrounding Jerusalem. But ironically, the, the people of Egypt try to claim that it was their God who did it. And I always think about how funny that is. Isn't that great? The Egyptian God cared for the Israelites. But the importance of that artifact is it shows us that indeed this is a historical event. It really did happen. That God intervened and he removed the northern army. Now, he does that later again in 612 BC when he sends the Babylonians to destroy the people of Nineveh. And by the way, these were horrific battles. We don't often think about the destruction of Babylon and the destruction of the Assyrians prior to that is horrific battles because they were on the enemies of God, but they were. They were absolute devastations, just as God was prophesying in the book of Joel. Now, I also want you to see that God promises that a stench will arise and the smell of their corpses will come up. That's a promise. Oops, I hit the wrong button. I apologize. That's a promise that God makes of the future enemies of God in Isaiah 34. Okay, that he is going to ultimately decimate his enemies. And so one of the reasons we should trust in Christ is certainly because he saves us from our sins. We deserve destruction. But we also trust in him because he's the ultimate warrior who can protect his people from all of their enemies. That's a great promise. Now, notice in red, it says, for it has done great things. There is some debate about this text here. Because some people believe this should be rendered for he has done great things, as if God is being referred to here. But at this point in the narrative, God is not the subject. The reason why the northern army is being removed is because as, as it has done horrific things, great things in that sense. Now, the reason I'm highlighting that is because when we get to verse 21, you're going to see that God is able to do great things, even greater things than the northern army. So there's a deliberate contrast between the great things the northern army did in verse 20 and the even greater things that God can do in verse 21. Okay, now let me spend a little time talking about this northern army because this threat that came from the north to Israel ultimately was the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But as I'm going to show you, the one who motivated the Assyrian and Babylonian armies was Satan himself. But the first thing I wanna do is prove to you that the army from the north was Assyria and was Babylon. And so I'm gonna show you some other texts where this is proven to be true. For example, look at what it says in Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 2.13, Regarding the Lord, what he'll do, it says he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Okay, so again, let's just be clear. Who is this enemy from the north that God would destroy? It's Assyria. Now, we all know Assyria is technically, technically to the east, but they came down from the north. Again, because they wouldn't try to penetrate the Arabian desert in their invasion. Okay, now let me give you a passage from Zechariah. Zechariah 2, 6 or 7, here's a plea that the Israelites still in Babylonian captivity should flee from Babylon and come back to their homeland. But notice the implication for our purposes. Zechariah 2, 6 through 7, he says, Ho there, flee from the land of the north. 
declares Yahweh. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. So again, this land of the north, even though Babylon was to the east, that's the direction they came down in their invasion upon Israel and Judah. So again, the enemy of the north is what? It's Babylon. That's why I keep telling you this army from the north that Joel is warning about hundreds of years in advance, 150 years in advance, is in fact the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Okay, this is some evidence I think that's very clear that these were the armies that God would wipe out. Okay, now let me turn to the next slide. And what I want to do is I want to talk about evidence that Satan is ultimately the motivating force behind this northern army. And I want to show you this in Isaiah 14. Let me just build my case here with you. Let's put up Isaiah 14 on the screen here, verse 4. And notice what Isaiah says. This is the Lord taunting, as it were, giving a proverb of the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14, 4, the Lord says, You shall take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. Now, dear ones, I want you to all note this term that's in red, the term taunt, mashal in Hebrew. Now, what's very interesting is I, I did a lot of research into this term, and it's most often rendered a proverb. Okay. In fact, I want you to see evidence of this in one of the passages in the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28.37. Deuteronomy 28.37. And I'm going to explain why this may be significant for understanding Isaiah 14 and what is going on with this army of the north. So please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28.37. I want you to see another place where this term mashal is used. And again, I'm, I'm claiming that the term for taunt, mashal, is most often rendered proverb. And I think that's how it, it may be understood here. Deuteronomy 28, 37. Notice here, remember in Deuteronomy 28, God is giving the promises for the faithfulness of Israel, but also the curses if they don't obey. And notice here is the curse. He says in Deuteronomy 28, 37, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. Now, notice the term proverb there. That's from the term mashal, the same term that's rendered here as taunt. What's interesting is in taunt, but it's shanina. Now, shanina, as you can know, is not mashal. That's a term that Isaiah could have used if he wanted to say taunt. But instead, he's referring to more than likely a proverb. Why is that important? Let me explain something I learned from a British scholar named J. Alec Mottier. J. Alec Mottier points out that in this text, in the context, proverb makes more sense because what's going on in Isaiah 14 is that there is a proverb that's revealing the inner truth of the king of Babylon, that ultimately what's motivating the king of Babylon is Satan himself. Why? Because Satan wants to make God a liar. It's God who promised to the people of Israel in Genesis 15 to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would be a people forever, that they would have a land forever. And it's Satan who's motivating Babylon and Assyria to overthrow that. And so the point is, this is a proverb that's revealing the inner truth of this king of Babylon, that ultimately it's not a human king 
that the battle is really with, but it's ultimately with the satanic in the demonic realm. That's the issue. And so that's why we see, notice on the screen, Isaiah 14, 13, the Lord says this, he says, but you said in your heart, now remember he's going after the king of Babylon, but ultimately the one who is motivating him. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. Oh my goodness, this is significant. Notice the boasting of this king of Babylon. He's going to raise his throne above the stars of God and sit on this assembly. What that's referring to, dear ones, is what Bob and I have been referring to as the divine council. This is the angelic realm. This king is making a boast that he is going to sit higher than the divine council. He is going to be the chair of it. Now, I believe that that implies that this is ultimately a demonic and a satanic boast. Now, further evidence of that is notice he's going to sit in the recesses of the north. You've heard me tell you the joke. That's the term in Hebrew, zaphon. But it's not about a phone. It's about the northern area where these enemies came down. Now, when we talk about the recesses of the north, in the Bible, there were three mountain ranges that are typically seen as Zaphon, the recesses of the north. There was Mount Cassius in northern Syria. There's Mount Hermon in Lebanon. And then there was also Mount Olympus. Now, I'm not saying Mount Olympus is actually biblical, but that's what the later pagans thought the gods came down, the Nephilim. But for our purposes, it's either the Mount Cassius in northern Syria or it's Mount Hermon in Lebanon. Now, why is that important? Because that is the area in which Baal resided. That's the area in which El, the chief of all the gods, had his own divine council. That is, it's the demonic realm. It's a stronghold of the demonic realm was to the north of Israel. So, dear ones, do you see how ominous it is then when the Assyrians came down and the Babylonians came down from the recesses of the north? Not only were they a real threat militarily, but even geographically it was ominous because that was the area of the demonic stronghold. Now, let me prove to you that this is an issue, and I think the recesses of the north is probably a reference here to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is understood in some extra biblical literature is the place where the Nephilim came down. The sons of God went into the daughters of men. More than likely that happened probably at Mount Hermon. At least it was at the time of Jesus, a place of Baal worship and even prior. Okay. Now I want you to see evidence of this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 68 verses 15 through 16. Psalm 68, verses 15 through 16. Now, Bob did a wonderful job explaining part of Psalm 68 as it related to Ephesians 4, uh, not too long ago in our studies in Ephesians. But I want you to see here in Psalm 68, 15 through 16, there's a battle between two different mountains. The mountain that Satan chose with all of the demonic horde, which is Mount Hermon, the recesses of the north, versus Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, that God chose as his abode. So notice the contrast, Psalm 68, verses 15 through 16. Hope you've turned your Bibles there. 
Psalm 68, verses 15 through 16, it says, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. So let's just stop there. What is the Mount Bashan? That's Mount Hermon in Lebanon. Okay, that's what it is. Now, again, that was the, the center of Baal worship in demonic activity for much of the period, even from the time of Joshua all the way forward, even to Jesus' day. That's how it was regarded. And again, more than likely, that's where the sons of God came down to impregnate the daughters of men at the time of the Nephilim that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. So this is the demonic stronghold. This is where Satan is trying to usurp God. He's trying to have his own unholy mountain, as it were. But notice as we continue reading in Psalm 68, 16, it says, Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, namely Mount Hermon, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is, why are you looking at envy at Mount Zion? Do you want to try to overthrow Mount Zion? Oh, Mount Bashan, Mount Hermon, is that what you're trying to do? That's the implication of Psalm 68, verses 15 through 16. Why? Because God chose Zion as his abode. Go back to Genesis 15. We looked at that earlier. What did God promise would last forever? The land of and his people. And so you see, that's what the battle is. Satan is trying to overthrow this. And so you have this northern army that comes from the recesses of the north, the demonic stronghold, trying to overthrow the people of God. And ultimately, the one who's behind it all is Satan himself. Dear ones, in the final days, in the 70th week of Daniel, we know that Babylon is going to be rebuilt. And by the way, Marxism, I think, plays into this. Why? Because we know whoever is the Antichrist, he doesn't worship the God of his fathers. He worships himself as God. He places, according to Paul himself, in the temple of God and declares himself to be God. You can't be a Muslim and do that. Are you with me? Now, I want you to think about Babylon is going to be rebuilt again. Why? Because the one who motivates Babylon is Satan. And Satan is trying to usurp the reign of Jesus Christ and make God a liar. That's what the battle is about. Whether it's Babylon, the enemy from the north in Joel's day, or the future Babylon, the one world order that's coming, it's all an attempt to usurp the Lord Jesus Christ, who rightly reigns and keeps his promises. That is what the battle is all about. Okay, I'm going to check time here. I think we're good. Okay, let me go on to the next slide here. Let's talk about this move then for the people of God. When he restores them, they're to go from fear to gladness. And what a day that'll be. Joel 2:21 through 23, he says, Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad. For the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the thing. We had a major power outage. Everything went down. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I got so, you. You know, it's so funny. I, I was talking to myself. All of a sudden, I looked, and you weren't there, and I thought, uh-oh, oh, I think I'm preaching to myself. It's not even preaching to the choir in that case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's even worse. <laughs> Pretty um, sad when you preach to yourself. That's, that's a good one. Huh? 
Well, let's look at verses 21 through 23, where God is going to bring them from fear to gladness. And again, this is something that's going to occur in the future. Notice what he says. He says, do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain. And I have a misspelling here. It should be the early and latter rain as before. Now, dear ones, notice here, there's going to be a move from fear to gladness. And again, this is going to be in the future because it's in the future where God is going to remove the northern enemy, the northern threat, the Assyrians and the Babylonians from them. So here, what Joel does is he gives the reason why the people of God should go from fear to gladness. It says, for the Lord has done great things. Now, again, I think this is a proleptic statement that he has done great things means he is going to do it with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and it's assured. It's a, gather, another proleptic statement, all right? Now, remember, this is seen as a contrast. Back in Joel 2.20, it was the pagan nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, who did great things, meaning horrific things, things that the Israelites would never want to see repeated again on their homeland. But God is able to conquer them because he's the greatest warrior of all. He is able to do even greater things, is the implication. He's able to wipe them out. He drives them into the sea. He removes their enemies from them. Okay, that's the great promise that we're given here. Notice also the promise for the beasts of the field. The good news for Israel incorporates the promises of a good crop, of food. All the things that they lost, even during the locust plague, are one day going to be restored. That's the great promise, and that's why they can go from fear to gladness. Now, let me try to keep moving on here. I'm sorry, I got a couple of computer issues here now. But let's talk about how God restores Israel's crops. Verses 24 through 26, he says, The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. My great army, which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here the great promise that he's going to restore the grain. He's going to restore the new wine and the oil. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why is it significant that God would restore those three things, the grain, the new wine, and the oil? Well, because God mandated that the Israelites use those things during their daily sacrifices. So I want you to remember this. When the locust plague came down upon the people of Israel, they were not able to worship God as he commanded them. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 29, verses 38 through 42. I want you to see where this is promised, that they had to use, in fact, it's not just promised, it's commanded. They had to use grain, oil, and new wine with their daily sacrifices. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 29, verses 38 through 42. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, Exodus chapter 29, Verses 38 through 42. I'll give you a moment to turn to that. I'll grab a drink here. 
I hope you turn there to Exodus 32, excuse me, Exodus 29, verses 38 through 42. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. So stop there for just a moment. Notice this is the daily sacrifice. So there's going to be two lambs, one in the evening, one in the morning, and these lambs are to be given continuously. By the way, let me just stop there for a moment. Do you remember in Matthew 12, Jesus argues that he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, the, remember the leadership of Israel was accusing of a breaking Sabbath. One of the arguments Jesus makes is that even the people that worked in the temple, the Levitical priesthood, worked on Sabbath. And the reason they worked on Sabbath is they had to do the daily sacrifices. So they're working in the temple, providing sacrifice for the people, was not a violation of the Sabbath. Well, Jesus, who is the greatest sacrifice, who's far greater than the temple, if he works on Sabbath, how much more should that be acceptable to the people? And how much less is that a sin before God? That's one of the arguments. So I want you to see that it's very significant that we realize the temple was to have continual sacrifice going on. But notice what they had to add to their continual sacrifices daily to the morning and evening offering. It says, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephop of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with the same grain offering and same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Then in verse 42, it says, it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So dear ones, I want you to notice that they couldn't do that because of the locust plague. Why? Their grain was taken away. Notice on the screen, their new wine was taken away and their oil was taken away. They didn't have their crops, but God is going to restore that when they turn from their idolatry and they come to faith in him again, just as he promised that he would do in his promises in Deuteronomy 28. Okay, now notice in red, notice you have this promise, I will make up for you, excuse me, make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I remember years ago when I was a brand new Christian, I heard a big debate about this passage and the way it was being used was by evangelicals in America claiming that this promise could be something that America could claim. That if we would repent as a nation, that somehow God would do this for us. That he would restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But it's important to remember that this promise was given to the people of Israel. Remember, they're the ones who were given the covenant and God never entered into a covenant with America. So one of the issues we have to think about is what does it look like for America as a whole to repent? And again, I think it looks like individuals repenting of idolatry and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so my point is this is a promise that God had given to Israel. In fact, in fact turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28.11. 28.11. Please turn your Bibles there. 
I want you to see that this is a promise that God was given to give fertility to the ground and a crop for the Israelites. But you and I can't claim that as Americans. We have no promise as Americans that God is going to guarantee that we have a bumper crop. Why? Because our nation is not a theocracy. We do not have a covenant with God as Israel did. Okay, so notice Deuteronomy 28, 11. It says this, this is a blessing. It says, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. Okay, now stop there. Did God swear to any other nation this promise? No. And by the way, that's why no other nation was on the hook for keeping the Mosaic Covenant. Israel was. So how do we understand this promise as Christians living in America under the new covenant? The way we are to understand it is the principle that everyone who repents and comes to faith in Jesus Christ has been grafted into the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promise for us, as we see it in Deuteronomy 8.28, is really the same promise that we see here, that God God really does promise to work all things for the good for those who love him who are called according to his promise. Okay, God really will work out all things. Now, that doesn't mean you and I say, well, I'm not wearing my seatbelt anymore. Or why, you know, bother pre-flighting the airplane? After all, God is going to cause all things to work out for the good. No, we believe in compatibilism. Yes, we are responsible for actions, but God is also sovereign. Okay, so that's how I think we should understand this text, yes, we are also guaranteed that God will one day bring every event in our lives about for our own good. Um, recently, a, a woman had called me with some problems with the demonic realm. And one of the things that Bob has been very good in his writings and in his ministry has been showing that what we have to do is trust God, that God runs even the demonic realm, that God uses all things uh, plainly in the scriptures for our good, even the angelic realm. That's the great promise that we see God give to his people. Okay, now let's talk about God's people and his name being restored. Notice what it says here, Joel 2.27. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. Notice what the Lord is restoring. He's going to restore his name and his people. His name is at stake. I am the Lord your God, and there's no other. That's what's at stake with the restoration of Israel, that the Holy One of Israel is the only true God. And so this is why Israel, in the past when they sinned against God, what they were really doing is they were breaking the third commandment. The third commandment, member says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, I like the rendering, you shall not take up or bear the Lord's name in vain. You see, oftentimes when I was a kid, I thought of the third commandment as merely not using the Lord's name as a cuss word. And certainly that would be a violation, I think, of the, of the third commandment. However, it's deeper and broader than that. The major prohibition in the third commandment is that we as the people of God cannot bear the name of the Lord, claim to belong to him, and yet live like the pagans. That's what was going on in the time of Joel. That's why he wanted them to repent, so they would no longer live like the Goyim, the pagan nations, but they would live 
in such a way that God would again restore their fortunes, that they would return to faith and that he would bring them into their land, that he would heal them and he would show his name to be great. If we bear the Lord's name in vain, what that really means is we're living in a way in which the pagans will look at our God and say, well, who is he? Who is this God that they worship? That's the disrepute and disrespect the idolatry and sin brings upon the name of God. Now, what I want to do is I want to end with this and I'm going to open up some questions. Sorry, we got a little behind. I wanted to have at least 10 minutes for questions and comments. But I want to just briefly lead you through a timeline of the restoration of Israel. So on my timeline, I want to put up the first uh, destruction of Assyria on the northern kingdom of Israel. But I want you to remember that what I'm claiming is on my timeline, Joel wrote the book of Joel in the ninth century. So in the 800s, around 840 BC. So he wrote this in advance. Okay, so when the northern army of Assyria came down, remember, it destroyed the 10 tribes of Israel. It wiped them out, the northern tribes. And then remember, it put a siege upon Judah eventually. And that's where we read Isaiah 37, where Sennacherib's forces were destroyed. And then, of course, Sennacherib went back to Nineveh. Well, in 612 BC, God destroyed Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire really once and for all at the hands of the Babylonians. So now the Babylonians become the dominant power. And then what you have is, lo and behold, the Judean kings are just as bad as the Israelite kings of the north. So much so that by the term, by the year 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into Babylonian captivity. But then what happens is in 539 BC, oops, I don't have that on here. Excuse me, let me just point to it with my pointer. In the year 539 BC, they're destroyed by the hands of the Medo-Persians. So by the year 539 BC, God was faithful to what we just read about in Joel, that God would get rid of the Assyrian and Babylonians, the northern empires, the northern enemy. Are you with me? Well, then what happens is God has the temple rebuilt by 516 BC. Okay. Now, the reason that's significant that the second temple is rebuilt in 516 BC is do the math once. Subtract 516 from 586, and what do you get? You get 70 years. So what was the promise in Jeremiah chapter 25 is that the Israelites would be in captivity for how long? For 70 years. So no matter how you do the math, whether you go from 605 BC to 535 BC, where the people are back in their land, or you go from 586 BC to 516 BC, where the temple is rebuilt, it's 70 years. God was faithful to his promises. Now, what happens, of course, is Israel sins and rebels again. Remember, God sends his son around 0 AD, or it's actually about 4 BC, I believe, right in there. And the Israelites reject his son. So that destruction comes at the hands of the, the Romans this time in 70 AD, just as prophesied by Jesus in passages like uh, Luke 21, Luke 19, etc. All right. Well, now you and I are living during the time of the Gentiles until the 70th week of Daniel. And in the 70th week of Daniel, 
God is going to bring Israel to faith again in the Messiah. And at that time, he is going to defeat all of his enemies that we're going to read about in Joel chapter 3. That's the battle that occurs at the end of the 70th week. And then you have the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom in which all of God's promises for Israel are going to be restored. And his name will be great among the entire world. That's how all of this is going to play out in history. And again, what we're in now in Joel is a section that leads to this final battle and God's final promises when we get to Joel chapter 3. Okay, so with that, let me take any comments, questions, ideas, um, whatever you may have. We don't have a lot of time, but there's one that I've already been asked by different people that are CAC yeah. readers and by our own congregation. And it concerns yeah. the boundaries of Israel. You mentioned the promise back in Genesis 12, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or Genesis 15. Yep. Genesis yep. 15, 15, excuse me. Genesis 15. And then you mentioned briefly that that won't happen till the millennium. Yeah, that's what I believe. Yeah, we, we don't know, but that's what I'm assuming is that it will be at least established then, yeah. Okay, so the question is, what relationship then does current Israel have with that ultimate promise of those ideal boundaries? Israel as she is yeah. right now. Yeah, you know, Bob, one thing that I think you and I would affirm is that Israel really is apostate. Uh, because of the rejection in Jesus Christ, they really are covenant breakers. Now, because they are chosen that God will keep them as a people and that one day he will bring them to faith, as we see in Zechariah 12 and in uh, the book of Romans, chapter uh, 11, we know that he's going to protect them and keep them. But right now, as a people in mass, they're in rebellion against God. And it's not because they're not keeping the Mosaic covenant. It's because they've rejected the new covenant. Okay, so anyone who rejects Jesus Christ is under the wrath of God. And the only way anybody's going to be a partaker of this coming kingdom that's coming to Israel is by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we see in the 70th week of Daniel. If you look on the screen, starting in Revelation 11, which is at the midpoint, I believe God brings them to faith. And it's evidenced by the term they glorified God. Okay, so there's a remnant in Israel that will glorify God. They will be brought to faith, and then they're brought into the wilderness, the last exodus. In fact, the same exodus language is used in Revelation 12 through 13. They're going to come to faith in the Messiah, just as uh, the apostle Paul had prophesied in Romans 11, 26, where he said, all Israel will be saved. And just as it said in Zechariah 12, 10, they'll look upon the one whom they pierced, Oops, and they'll mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. So here's the point. We don't have to worry about trying to establish by human effort the boundaries of Israel today. We can simply know that when the Messiah does his work, brings them to faith in himself, and comes a second time, he's going to bring those promises about. So we don't have to try to establish them. Now, at the same time, I think it behooves us not to attack Israel. We certainly don't want to be enemies of Israel and to persecute God's people. But we don't have to take it upon ourselves to try to establish the boundaries that God will establish by his power alone. So I hope, I hope that helps answer okay. the... Well, a lot of people are asking about it and somehow assuming that it's America's job to make sure Israel gets those ideal boundaries. 
Right, and you're, and it's not. We're not going to be the ones who we're, are. We're one of the goyim, right? We're, we're. Yeah, exactly. We're one of the pagan nations, and you pointed that out really well, Bob. And your exposition of Deuteronomy 32. Well, uh, see, you uh, the, there are pro- so-called prophets in America who are saying that every time America gets in any kind of a negotiation over in Israel, uh, trying to broker peace, whether it's a good or bad idea, we're free to express our opinion and so forth. But there are prophets claiming that hurricanes and disasters hit America because God's angry that America has anything to do with making deals in Israel. And I I wrote about that. Now, there's a guy still doing that. And they even have a timeline. A delegation went to Israel, then a hurricane hit. A delegation went to Israel, then a hurricane hit. So they're reading nature in order to find God's moral law. And it's the pagans who gain their theology from nature, not Christians. Amen. Okay? That's right. And we can't discern good and evil based on where the hurricane hit. Jesus right. specifically said that those in Galilee whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices were not worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee. The people right. in Louisiana aren't worse sinners than the people in Florida or Minnesota. Or, in fact, I think Minnesota's got plenty of worse sinners. <laughs> but we don't get hurricanes. And so That's right. I, I, hope, I don't know if we're in agreement, but Eric, I've told Absolutely. people that Israel exists as part of God's providence, and it is significant. The, Amen. That's exactly right. And there is an Israel yep. that will be right. dealt with during uh, Daniel's 70th week. But right now, the boundaries of Israel are part of God's providence, too. And boundaries of all nations are set through political intrigue, wars, armies. But yet the Bible, you mentioned compatibilism, says God draws out the boundaries. Exactly. So I would affirm we love Israel. We pray for Israel. We wish for the best well-being of Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We ask God to bring salvation to the Jewish people, and I know people yeah. over there preaching the gospel, but we can't claim that God's going to send a hurricane to America because he doesn't like somebody uh, making deals. The only way to Amen. know that if, is if you're an infallible prophet. And if you claim right. to be an infallible prophet, and you claim to be speaking for God, and you're wrong once, you're a false prophet, and if you were under the old covenant, you'd be stoned. That's right. Exactly right. That's so right. I would say stop it. Yeah. Amen. And you're, I know um, one of the teachers that does that is Jonathan Kahn. And one of the problems is uh, he does it through to really sell books. It's, it's a form of sensationalism. And the problem with it is we don't have, as you mentioned, an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history that can say any given calamity is the wrath of God. You know, um, the question is, if we're going to look down that corridor and say, well, every time there's something evil that's done to Israel, some calamity happens. There is a lot of evil that has happened that we don't know about, especially during the Obama administration. You think about $150 billion given in cash. You had America trying to subterfuge the elections. There is a lot of evil, and you can't put a one-to-one relationship between storms and 
all these calamities. It's something that we just can't do. One of the examples I was thinking of is we know uh, some years ago there was that white supremacist who attacked those 12 uh, b black Christians in a church. And this calamity came upon them not because they were somehow doing something wicked, but simply because they belonged to Christ and they were persecuted. And so again, um, there's you'll see tornadoes hit godly believing churches down in Alabama, and you'll have a huge heretic center up in uh, Minneapolis that isn't touched at all. You know, so we can't judge, as you said, like pagans, our theology by storms. We don't have an authoritative apostle or prophet that tells us whether any given sickness or storm today is the wrath of God. These, this is information we can't know. And so if we try to claim we can know, we're actually engaging in divination. We're, in, we're trying to claim that we can know secret information that the Lord has not revealed. And so Jonathan Kahn is an evil diviner. He's actually engaged in divination. He's a false prophet. And as you said, Bob, under the old covenant, he would have been stoned. He should thank the Lord okay. for the new covenant. Dear saints, we can't get our theology. We cannot get our theology from nature. So Amen. Eric and I are saying, love Israel, pray for Israel, support Israel, vote for politicians that will support Israel. Use your freedom in America to support the things you know are right and from God. And But don't make claims that you can't prove from the Bible. This Amen. is part of providence. That's right. And should something happen, all of a sudden Israel has a whole bunch more land, that's part of God's providence too. Exactly. Well, yep. Okay. So don't start making unsubstantiated claims. And newsflash, we got to go, but newsflash, America <laughs> is not Israel. Amen. Amen. Newsflash, America is a pagan nation. That's right. You have noticed that lately? Amen. Well said. Hey, let me pray for you, Bob, and the message coming. Yes, please thank do. Thank you so much. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters, the gospel of grace. We thank you for our time together. I do pray for Bob as he is going to preach your word. I do pray that you would give him your strength and stamina and open our ears to hear. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers, all for the sake of your name and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. God bless you. Yeah, we'll see you, we'll see you in a little upstairs. bit.